Hello everybody, I'm Ollie and this is Watch It Baptist Church Online. If you haven't had the pleasure of meeting me already, um, look at you. Uh, I'm sure you will at some point. You'll know me because I'll be in church with my wife Emily and little AJ. He'll be running around causing a ruckus somewhere. This is session four of going through Matthew 18. Uh, Mike introduced the uh, round table way that we've been approaching these um, sessions which was us just meeting together as a group wisdom to talk about uh, various aspects of Matthew 18. Um, before we start, I'm going to pray. Lord God, thank you for um, the time that you've given us to just spend listening to your word and just trying to pick it apart and trying to live by it, Lord. Um, I really appreciate all of the people here who have taken some time out um, to do this because time is so precious, <laughs> so precious in the modern age. I pray you just with us um, as we go through your word. Um, I pray you guide our thoughts uh, and I pray you guide our challenges as we go through it. Amen. So today we're going to focus on verses 15 to 20, which I will read you for now. I'm reading from the NIV. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Well, before we fully get started, um, I want to introduce some of the context of Matthew 18 and then talk about three points that I want to go through and I feel that Jesus is trying to get across in what he's saying here. Firstly, many commentators will tell you that there isn't a good way to split up Matthew 18. Somewhat unhelpfully in my NIV and probably your biblical translations as well, there are big titles um, in between all the sections. Uh, but the context here is really important. 15 to 20 is actually titled Dealing with Sin in the Church, which is incredibly dramatic. Um, but I'm hoping to show you that actually some of that drama is for good reason. Matt spoke to us last week about the wandering sheep, about how joyful God is at finding those who are ignored, who have fallen away or stumbled. And also how God feels about people who cause other believers to stumble. Following these verses, we're going to go into the parable of the unmerciful servant, which I believe is a cautionary tale on how we should use the gift of God's grace. Sandwiched within them then, we kind of have this blueprint or guide on how to deal with people we feel are sinning. Some of us have experience of this being used as a way to strong arm and enforce a very specific viewpoint. And to be honest, get rid of those who don't agree with it. Or else, some of us may have experienced this as a way of kind of nullifying a single voice that doesn't agree with the rest of us. But in the context of Matthew 18, this just seems really odd to me. 
Forcing a very specific viewpoint onto a group doesn't really fit with the warning of causing little ones among us to stumble. And getting rid of dissenting voices doesn't seem to fit with the warning against being unmerciful. I believe the author is leading us to a very different point. And I think we can take three key learnings from this. The first one I'm going to go through uh, is that we are called to do things for ourselves and not really through our leaders. Secondly, that we are called to radical relationship building. And thirdly, then, uh, that we were going to rely on each other and our community to make all of this work. So section one, we're going to do things for ourselves and not through our leaders. It's widely accepted that whoever wrote Matthew, they had a very good understanding of the Jewish law. And this was the code in which all Jews lived in order to draw closer to God. It's also accepted that the author saw the teaching of Jesus as a radical challenge to this traditional interpretation. Matthew's gospel can be seen then as a bit of an educated rebellion against the overly regimented and regulated lives of the Pharisee. We notice that in 15, verses 15 to 20, and in fact the whole of Matthew 18, that there's no reference to elders or teachers, and I believe that this is deliberate. To a contemporary Jew, and those talking with Jesus at the time, and even to the, uh, the initial readers of Matthew's gospel, they had defined people in society who understood the law. The Pharisee movement had a strong central leadership that dictated exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. Yet here Jesus is saying, go, point out their fault just between the two of you. If it doesn't work out how you've hoped, well, bring one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So even when you were faced with difficulty, Jesus still puts the call to action on each of us as individuals. It's no surprise then that this concept is taken further when we jump forward to Matthew 23, which says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There is certainly more to reflect on this passage, verses 15 to 20, but for now I want to take a moment to acknowledge this often overlooked component. The first thing I feel Jesus is trying to tell us is that we have an active role to play, an active and engaged role in what we feel is right and wrong. Nothing here deflects that responsibility to our pastors or our deacons or even our good Bible studiers. Actually, the poignant message here is that we're called to do it ourselves. So on to section two, we are called to radical relationship building. The Jews listening to Jesus and reading this early account will have had accepted ways of dealing with differences. This often involved dragging people in front of witnesses, making public displays of legal correction, and reimbursement was often very well defined and even contractual. 
Yet here we don't even get a clear definition of what sins means. How can we possibly replace years of learned tradition or accepted legal activity with the simple notion of just talking about our problems on a one-to-one -one basis to resolve them? You can imagine this would have been shocking to those reading it at the time. It would have been an upheaval of a commonly socially accepted way of behaving. Yet, perhaps this is something we need to relearn, especially in a world where perhaps we feel too little and communicate too much. At any given moment when frustration sets in, a lot of us can reach into our pockets, pull out our phone and broadcast that to our community or even the world at large. It's a common joke in our house that there's no point complaining about something unless it's on Twitter. Because businesses listen to public defamation. It used to be that you had to make a phone call to ensure you got money off on your bills. And now if you want something done, it's social media. Every time. If you have a controversial opinion, don't worry about it. Just compose that Facebook post, fire it off to the world under no circumstances. Stop to check for grammar. While this was written for its time, perhaps the message of Matthew 18 is the same. We have to even reimagine how we deal with each other. While the contemporary audience may have struggled with cold, legal interaction when others miss the mark, can we say that our use of social media or our want to talk to any other person other than the person we have a problem with is any less dispassionate? The second thing I think Jesus is trying to share with us is this. The true meaning of how to apply Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is how we deal with each other. We need to look at the ministry of Jesus as a guide, not just these five verses, not refer to some simple to understand bullet points or simple steps, but actually dig deep into our personal relationships with others to make this work. So finally, we make it to point three. We should rely on our community and each other. We're on the final point for so thank you for bearing with me this far. Okay, so we've talked about doing things for ourselves and we've talked about radical relationship building. And now it's time for the pointy end. Being honest, when confronted with Matthew 18, 15 to 20, how many of us jump to the end? Specifically, and if they refuse to listen to even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And perhaps even more ominously, truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Honestly, I don't think we should avoid this challenge. Instead, let's wade in and try and pick this apart. Starting at the end, we as a church, when we gather in numbers, have the authority to make things happen, to bind things and to loose them. This verse and its terminology is often used out of context to refer to demons. However, commentators are pretty clear that this is about the discipline of humans. When we think of the wandering sheep that came before it and the merciful servant that is yet to come, perhaps this is equally a word of empowerment. Great, our opinions matter to God and we can make things happen with a heavenly authority. Also, it could be a warning. Your choices have consequences and ultimately we will be called to make an account of the decisions we make. 
So how do we make sure we are wielding this power responsibly? I think the key is in verses 19 to 20. Again, truly I tell you that if two or three on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. The raw truth is humans don't agree on anything. Have you ever tried to get a group of people out for dinner on the same day? Have you ever been to a trustees meeting? Have you seen the Houses of Parliament lately? Have you seen the UN? On every level, from our friendship groups right the way through to people helping guide our future, humans disagree. So then, perhaps this very simple message that you have to agree on something before it's bound or loosed is actually far harder than it first appears. So why do we put ourselves through it? Why do all these groups exist? Why do we still have boardrooms and committees and meet for Bible studies if all we ever do is disagree? I think the answer here is wisdom. Not knowledge or authority, but wisdom. The people you interact with every day have lived different lives to you, experienced different joys and different hurts, and they've learned from them. We need to rely less on our own convictions but temper them with the convictions of others. The more divergent and diverse that group is, the better. There are hard-hitting examples to use here, but as this verse is pretty hard-hitting already, I'm going to use a softer one. And that is the iPhone 4. Released in 2010, it hit the market and everyone was super excited to get their new phone. They immediately started using it, bit bubbly booping and um, doing all the things they love to do, accepting calls, text messages, social media, the whole lot. However, people started to realise um, that it had some problems. First of all, unbeknownst to um, the general public, Apple had designed the phone that the antenna was in the bottom left-hand corner. For a right-handed individual like myself, that's absolutely fine. I can use my phone pretty normally and not worry about it. However, as soon as people started to use it in their left hand, they covered the antenna with their palm. All of a sudden, calls would drop out. People wouldn't be able to send text messages. It would interrupt their daily life. And it cost the company millions, if not billions, in reformation damage in order to correct that fault. That was a relatively simple problem that could have been solved if they just tested it with people who were left-handed and had the foresight to include people in their groups. They used their left hand more often. If we're going to treat somebody like a tax collector or a pagan, we best borrow all the wisdom we can. And the more diverse and wide-reaching that wisdom is, the better. Because sadly, occurrences like these are not as rare as we might think. If you ask around, a common joke is that church would be great if it wasn't for other people. And I've heard that multiple times from multiple different churches, so it's definitely made the rounds. Just this week, I was approached by a friend who used to have a faith. And they used to feel something, genuinely, when they prayed. But they're no longer a churchgoer. They're a real depiction of the wandering sheep that we all read about last week. It's not a fictitious story, it's a true reality for a lot of people out there. People have fallen from their faith. And a lot of that reason is due to personal difference that has really no theological bearing, um, or actually strong differences with how people do things in the church. 
So the final and perhaps hardest point I feel Jesus is trying to tell us is if we're going to wield heavenly authority, we have to do it together. And we have to trust each other as we do it. So as we draw this session to a close, I just want to pray for us um, before we dissipate. And then I'm going to ask a few questions. Lord God, thank you for this time you've spent with us. Um, and I pray that you guide us through what it is you wanted to say in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. I pray you give us the courage um, to encounter those difficult conversations we might have to have with others in the church. I pray, Lord, just guide us um, with the right words and wisdom in those situations, but actually help us build radical relationships and know what it means to build those relationships with others. Help us to be humble in that um, as we do. And Lord God, help us to rely in the trust of others. Um, help us know what it is that you need us to do when we're, as a church, using a group wisdom to make decisions that really matter to your kingdom. Amen. Finally, for some questions, um, I'm going to ask three, as is tradition, uh, and some of them are double-barreled, so I, I apologise for that in advance. Question number one. What is it about your Christian life that you like to defer to others? And how would you take control of that? Question two. Think of one person who you're struggling to build a relationship with. That could be at church or anywhere. Why is that? And what is the next step? And question three. If you were struggling with something in your Christian life, who would you go to? And then actually, who would you go to after that? And then actually... Who would you go to after that? And try and keep asking that question until you run out of people. <laughs>